1 Samuel chapter 2. You notice the title of the sermon, Praise God. The songs have been very praise-oriented this morning. We are indeed speaking about that topic of praise. Psalm, 18, uh, Psalm 18, excuse me, verse 3 says this, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. Psalm 33, verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Psalm 147, verse 1, Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant, and praise is comely, appropriate, right. We're going to praise God today and talk about praising God. We're going to extol our God's worth. We're going to consider the manifold ways that our God is worthy of our adoration. Truly, no one, nothing is worthy of praise but our God. There is no man upon this earth whose accomplishments and virtue have not been given to him according to the good pleasure of God, the goodness of God's hand upon him. There is not one golden sunrise in the morning. There is not one peaceful rain as it patters on the roof or, or on the sidewalk. There's not one silent snowfall, not one step we take, not one breath we take that is not a gift of grace from our Creator and from the One who is indeed Creator and Sustainer of all that is. And so this week we step back, back into 1 Samuel after an extended absence considering the dynamics of prayer. Last time we were in this book, do you remember what happened? Hannah, who had had a child named Samuel being given to him by the Lord after her prayers, gives that child to the Lord to serve in the temple for the duration of his life as a direct fulfillment of her vow to God that if she were given a man-child, he would indeed be dedicated unto the Lord. And so she has just given Samuel over at probably around the age of a year and a half to serve the Lord in the temple. And before she leaves the temple, she prays a prayer of praise unto God. And it is this praise, this prayer of praise that we're going to consider this morning. Hannah's prayer acknowledges the operations of God in this world, giving God the credit where the credit is due. He uh, is extolled, she extols the unchangeable elements of God's gracious character that yet touch us today even through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. So join me if you would as we read. We'll read the first 11 verses. Please follow along with me as I read 1 Samuel 2 verses 1 through 11. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumble are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread. They that were hungry ceased, so that the barren hath born seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. 
The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness for by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And Elkanah went to Ramah to his house, and the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli, the priest. We step into verse 1 this morning as we walk through this passage. Hannah's prayer begins, as it were, with an outpouring of the joy that is in her heart because of the favor of God that He has bestowed upon her by giving her a son. And notice the object of her praise. The object of her rejoicing. This prayer does not rejoice implicitly in the fact that she has had a son. The object of her rejoicing is not inherently her son, but the joy that is within her heart is directed not inherently at the gift, but at the giver of the gift. She is so happy to have a son without a doubt, but the joy that is in her heart is directed not toward Samuel himself, but toward the God that gave it. Remember, we talked earlier in the book about the fact that the essence of a Hebrew woman's worth the essence of her existence was wrapped in her ability to produce a man-child for her husband. It was for this reason that she saw the birth of her son, Hannah saw the birth of her son, not simply as a realization of a personal desire of her heart, but literally a personal vindication of her existence. And so her praise unto God does not simply follow the track of one who has received a blessing from the Lord, but you will hear her words declaring salvation because she literally saw the birth of this child as a vindication of her very existence. But this perspective will also take a prophetic significance. As we walk through the passage, you will see at the end, particularly in verse 10, Hannah's words of salvation and redemption are in the context not just of her being saved from her personal shame of being a barren woman in this Hebrew culture, but it will extend to the characteristics of God's salvation, eternal salvation given to every man, the redemption that is offered to every man through Jesus Christ on the cross. We'll highlight that when we get there. So Hannah proclaims here in verse 1 that she rejoices in the Lord and that her horn is exalted in the Lord. This is a, a phrase, an expression that you will see come up from time to time in the Scriptures, that one's horn is exalted. Now the horn in Hebrew culture was a symbol of strength. It was taken from the idea of the ox, the picture of the oxen whose strength would be in their horns. The horns are a symbol of the strength of the oxen. The horns are the, the reality of the strength of the oxen. They push with their head with their horns. They fight with their horns. The horns are a picture of strength. So when Hannah declares that her horn has been exalted in the Lord, what she is saying is that God has given her 
power over her enemies. It's not about her power because she says that her horn has been exalted in the Lord. It's about the reality that God has seen her lowly estate and that God has elevated her <clears throat> even apart from the limitations that her body had placed on her. Even apart from the limitations that she had had naturally, the Lord has thus exalted her power, exalted her strength, has lifted her up, exalted her horn. Literally, Hannah declares, in God's goodness, He has saved her from the continued attacks of her enemies. This particular enemy in question being Elkanah's other wife, Penina, who had been incessantly berating her for her inability to have children, incessantly mocking, taunting her for her inability to have children. And now she says, the Lord has exalted me, has exalted my strength over my enemy. She continues in verse 2. She says this, There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. The word holy here, uh, so perhaps a familiar Hebrew word, kadosh. Maybe you've heard that word before when someone's been preaching. But it, it's a word that literally means sacred or exclusive or set apart. It is a word that speaks to exclusivity. Not only that there is not any like our God, but that there cannot be any like our God. Not only that He is completely separate from all that is impure and evil, but that also by very definition, He is right and good. He defines right and good. He is holy. The holiness of God sets him apart from everything in his creation, makes him the standard whereby all conduct is measured. Because there is one who transcends the created order. There is one who is above the created order. He is holy. He is set apart. And thus he becomes the standard and the standard bearer. But what is wondrous about the holiness of God in the context within which we see Hannah's prayer is that though God is said here to be holy, that there is none beside Him, that there is no one like Him, notice what she then says. Neither is there any rock like our God. Though God is so far above us in holiness, though He is set apart from us in righteousness and in character and in person. He's not far away from us, is He? He's set apart from us. But He's our rock. Though in every conceivable way God is beyond us and God is above us, yet He condescends to be the very foundation upon which we stand. What a thought. That the God that is so far above us is our rock, is our footing, is the firmness upon which every day relies. And so in the very same breath, Hannah utters the declaration of God's holiness, exclusivity, distinction, and likewise declares that He is the sure foundation upon which His children stand. This world is full of shifting sands, is it not? 
foundations which make promises of stability but collapse under the weight of their own imperfections. The world seeks peace and stability through material comfort. But these material things are insufficient to offer us any lasting peace. The world seeks peace and stability through family and friends. But you all know that family and friends will fail you. That family and friends will not always be there for you. That some will pass away. They cannot offer lasting peace, a lasting foundation, a solid foundation. The world seeks peace and stability by hiding from their problems through drugs or through alcohol. But substances only offer a false and a temporary peace, one that leaves man worse than where he started. The world seeks peace and stability through religion, through ritual, through tradition. But ritual and religion and tradition are not ends in of themselves. They are a framework. They are a means that is intended to point us to the foundation. They are a means that is intended to point us to our God. But if we make ritual and religion and tradition the foundation upon which we stand, it will crumble. And you will crumble with it. Because religion and tradition and ritual are yet man-made. And thus as fickle as the heart of man. Today, many are relying upon the goodness of government as the foundation upon which they stand. But we know from Daniel chapter 2 that governments rise and fall. That kings rise and fall. That civilizations rise and fall. If that is our foundation, then it's as shifting as the sands on the sea. But we have a rock. And that rock is the holy God. God is holy. He's not like you. He's not like I am. He is above us. He is beyond us. He is wholly superior to us in every way. He is faithful. He is consistent. He is unchanging. And He has offered to be the rock upon which we can rest. One that will never shift. One that will never change. One that will never, ever fail you. Not just because He won't fail you. Literally, He cannot fail you. He is unmovable. He is the unshakable foundation upon which we can, if we will, rest every facet of our lives. And to those of us in this room who have placed our faith and our trust in that immovable rock by accepting Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, you have found that peace. You have found that rest. A peace and a rest that the rest of the world simply cannot know. Hannah says, He is the rock. The rock upon which we stand. In verses 4 and 5, Hannah presents the paradox upon which a relationship with God fully rests. Excuse me, I skipped verse 3. In verse 3, you'll see 4 and 5 up there. Just give me a moment here on verse 3. Verse 3, she says, Talk no more exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. Because this God is holy, this God is the rock upon which we stand, but there is a natural response that comes that ought to well up in our hearts 
because of our understanding of the God who we serve. And that should be a response of humility. That there should be no arrogance coming out of our mouths. Why? Because we aren't the beginning, nor are we the end, nor are we anything in between. God is the beginning and the end and everything in between. God is the Holy One. God is the rock. God is the immovable foundation. And so what are, who are we to talk exceeding proudly? Who are we to have arrogancy come out of our mouths? Much rather instead, she says, the Lord is a God of knowledge and by Him actions are weighed. That God, by virtue of His holiness, has become the standard upon which all of our actions are weighed. Did you know that morality is not a cultural thing? The world will try to tell you today that morality is a stigma that we place ourselves into moral expectations and even gender roles because of the culture within which we, we rest. In other words, our culture has said women should stay at home and men should go to work. And if we didn't have culture saying that, then that wouldn't be natural. That, w- that our culture says women should dress this way and men should dress this way, but it's, it's only a cultural thing. That, um, that it's culture that says um, homosexuality is is right or homosexuality is wrong and that it's because of our culture's morality. I heard a man once say it this way. He said, as he was talking to someone about morality transcending culture and transcending society, he said, in some cultures, it's, ex- uh, it's preached that you ought to love your neighbor. In other cultures, it's preached that you ought to eat your neighbor. Does it matter to you which one you're in? Does it really, if, if, if morality is only bound to culture, then there is no such thing as right and wrong, that we define right and wrong for ourselves. If we define right and wrong for ourselves, then there is no right and wrong. And if there is no right and wrong, then I should not be punished if I come up and steal everything that you own, as long as it benefits me. Then I should feel no qualms about going and burning my neighbor's house down because he put a dent in my car. Because that's what I want to do. And if there is no standard that transcends man, then this life is anarchy. But see, that's not how we operate, is there? Even those that say there is no standard, if someone were to come up and steal all of their possessions, they'd say, wait a minute, that's wrong. By whose standard is that wrong? These are just ingrained societal expectations. They're long past out of date. Right? No. No. Because there are things that are right and there are wrong. And that's what Hannah's saying. She says, if God is a holy God, then it ought to humble you to recognize that it is by God that judgment is weighed. That God is the God of knowledge. By Him our actions are weighed, that God is the standard bearer of morality. That there is an expectation that transcends man. Picking up in verse 4, Hannah says this in verse 4 and 5, The bows of the mighty men are broken. They that stumble are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread. They that were hungry have ceased, so that the barren hath borne seven. And she that hath many children is waxed feeble. In these verses, verse 4 and 5, Hannah presents a paradox 
This is a paradox that is found throughout the Word of God. But it is the paradox upon which a relationship with God rests. And we'll call this the paradox of humility. The paradox of humility. That men who see themselves as mighty and thus full of capability in themselves will be broken before God. And the man who sees himself as weak and stumbling finds his strength in God. That those who were rich and full of bread have gone hungry, and those that were hungry have been filled. That the barren woman finds herself full of offspring, the idea of having born seven, seven being that number of completion, that number of perfection in Scripture. In other words, she has seen all of her desires attained. And then the woman that has many children finds herself feeble. And the paradox that we see here is found throughout the Bible. Jesus Christ himself speaks to this paradox in Matthew 23. Look what he says in Matthew 23, 11 and 12. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. This is the paradox. How interesting that in God's design, in God's economy, the ones that are most exalted in His eyes are those who will humble themselves to the greatest degree. That the ones who are the most debased, the ones who are, who are least exalted in the eyes of God are the ones who would try to lift themselves up. The ones who would seek to gain personal glory, personal attention, these things are detestable to our God. The great man in the eyes of God is the humble man. The position of exaltation in God's kingdom is a position of a servant. The man who exalts himself, as I said, is detestable in the eyes of God. This and why? Because this man is seeking to take for himself that which is rightfully God's. The, the man who is proud, the man who is arrogant, is the man who is attempting to strip from God God's glory and place that glory upon him, himself, upon his own life. The man who thinks he has what it takes in himself to live this life or to obtain God's favor for the life to come is a man who will be sorely disappointed on the day he stands before God. And on the contrary, the man who humbles himself before the mighty hand of God will find that God himself will exalt him to a place of honor. The paradox of humility. As Hannah continues in verses 6 and 7, she presents the reasons why this is the case. She says, The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. So here's the thing. If you're alive, I think most of you are. There's a few that haven't been moving much. But, but most of you look pretty alive this morning. I know it's daylight savings time. You lost an hour of sleep, but you're alive. If you are alive, it's not because you're someone special. It's because God is good to you. You don't keep your heart beating. Doctors don't keep your heart beating. God keeps your heart beating. You say, Pastor, what about a pacemaker? 
Pacemaker is one small part of a very large system and God has given man the wisdom to interface something man-made with something that is so far beyond man's capacity or understanding. And yet we have found a way in the wisdom that God has granted to us to put one very small bit of that cog back into place or help that cog do what it needs to do, help keep that rhythm. That's not a testament to man being God. That's a testament to God's greatness and goodness to us. There's a method to how God works and He's always working. God knows who is rich and God knows who's poor. He sees who is humble. He sees who is proud. God is not fooled. God is not ignorant. God is not apathetic to the affairs of men. God will requite the humble in this life with personal exaltation and requite the proud in this life with spiritual debasement. God does not judge men based upon the standards of material wealth and prosperity. He doesn't see things the way we see things. God does not say, hey, look, a rich man, he must be a better man than this poor man. God does not judge based upon silly or um, shallow material standards. The greatness of a man in God's eyes is directly proportional to the greatness of his humility. Verse 8, Hannah continues. She says, He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes, to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He hath set the world upon them. Hannah pictures the world as sitting upon the pillars of the earth, she says, created and sustained by God, that God holds the world in place as pillars would hold a structure, as it would give integrity to the the structure. A poetic way of saying, God is the one who holds everything up. This should not throw us. We call uh, what happens every morning a sunrise and we call what happens every evening a sunset. Now we know that the sun is not rising or setting, but based upon man's perception and with a little poetic license, we recognize these things. Hannah is doing the same thing. Uh, With poetic license, she is showing that God is the one who has formed the earth and sustains the earth. The Lord is the, the creator, the sustainer of all things, sitting on the throne of glory, governing the world in righteousness as the ultimate authority over all that is. The physical world in which we live functions on the philosophy that might equals right. Right? That if I've got the power to make something right, then I win. That if I'm stronger than you, I win. The governments of this world say you do what we tell you to do because we're stronger than you, because we're bigger than you, because we have might and might makes right. The philosophy of this world is that the weak exist to be trampled on by the strong, that the poor exist to prop up the rich in their power, And while God's long-suffering endures as the wicked and the proud of this earth oppress the humble, this does not change the spiritual reality that one day the humble will be exalted and the proud will be abased. So she says this in verses 9 and 10, He will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. Notice this last phrase. 
and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The world is the Lord's and the Lord keeps the feet of his saints from slipping because he is the solid rock upon which they stand and he breaks his adversaries into pieces. We begin to get what we would say to be prophetic here. If I can use a big theological term, we begin to get um, eschatological. The idea of things that pertain to end times events. That God will judge the earth in righteousness. That there's coming a day when the debt of man's wickedness that he keeps ringing up over and over again every single day where God is going to call in that debt. And it will be a day of judgment. And it will be a day of terror. And it will be a day, praise the Lord, we won't be there. We are redeemed by His glory if you have accepted Christ as your Savior. But it will be a day of reckoning. But in this last statement, Hannah exalts God's king, saying that God will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. In that verse, her adoration unto God transitions from just her relationship between herself and her enemy Penina and the redemption that she found through Samuel's birth. And she extends it to God's promise of a Messiah. Remember where we are in Israel's history. Does Israel have a king? A a physical king? No. Israel has never had a king on the throne except for the one that God declared, which was himself. He said, I will be your king. They have yet to reject God fully as king. They have yet to request a physical king on this earth. There is no king sitting on the throne in Israel. It's the time of the judges. So we know she's not talking about some physical king. Who is she talking about? Who is this king that God will exalt? Well, she says in the next phrase, it's his anointed. That word anointed in the Old Testament is the word Messiah, the word in the New Testament, Christ. She declares that in the same manner that God has elevated her from her humble estate and blessed her over, the, over her proud enemies in the same way God will give strength unto his king who will be elevated from humility God will exalt the horn, the power of His Messiah to great heights. Which means what about this King? Which means what about this Messiah? That He will be in a place of humility. The link between humility and exaltation. And here we see a glimmer of the reality that this Messiah that would come, that this King... I'm getting chills. I love this stuff. That the king that would come would come in humility, not in fanfare. He would be exalted by his God. Wow. Hannah saw her situation as a small example of the same victory that Jesus Christ would one day realize over sin, over death, over hell, over the wicked one, and over the kingdoms of this world. And she said, God, this is how you work. 
This is the paradox of humility. It's the same yesterday and today forever. It's as consistent as the law of gravity. That God, you exalt the humble and you debase the proud. Your King is coming, God. Your Messiah is coming. And when He comes, you will exalt Him in the same way. He will be that same picture of humility that will be exalted. She rests in the confidence of knowing that just as God exalted her, so too He will exalt His Messiah and give Him victory over the kingdoms of this world that are doing what right now to God? Shaking their fists right in His face. And verse 11 says, Elkanah and Hannah leave the child to minister before the Lord and they go home to Ramah. Two applications as we close today. Number one, God is worthy of our praise. God is worthy of our praise. God needs nothing from us. Did you know that? God does not need your prayers. God does not need your gifts. God does not need your time. God does not need your honor. God does not need your praise. We give it to God because He is worthy. We extol our God for His might. We reverence our God for His power. We exalt our God for His goodness. We give to God that which is due unto His name. Psalm 96 says this, O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord, all ye saints. Sing unto the Lord. Bless His name. Show forth His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the heathen, His wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are His sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come to His courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before Him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For He cometh. For He cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with His truth. That's our God. That's why He is worthy. That is His worth. He's coming. He's coming to judge. He is truth. He is righteousness. He is our Creator. He is our Sustainer. The roar of the waterfall is an ode to God's majesty. The sound of thunder is an ode to God's power. The sound of the rain through the trees and the wind as it blows is an ode to the gentleness with which He treats us. All of creation praises God. Let's be a part of that praise. Let's be a part of that glory. We love Him because He first loved us, the Bible says. Let's praise Him for His love. So, God is worthy of our praise. Number two, praise works in us Christ's character. I'm going to invite you to turn with me as we close to Philippians chapter 2. Hannah was humble. 
So she was exalted. She said, God, you will exalt your king. You will exalt your anointed. You will exalt your Messiah. And we had mentioned already, as we link that to Jesus Christ, very clearly it's linked to humility. Philippians 2 is the treatise on Christ's humility. Please follow along with me as I read beginning in verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There's the humility of Messiah to, the, to death. He humbled himself. As God, he humbled himself to death. Look at verse 9. Wherefore, here's the paradox of humility, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. God is a great king. And regardless of the rebellion of this world that is around us, only those who do things His way will receive His rewards. Jesus Christ will one day be exalted above all things, visible and invisible, and be given every throne and every dominion and every kingdom of this world. And the reason He will be exalted to the very highest degree of God's capacity to exalt is because He humbled Himself to the very greatest degree of humility that He could. He submitted Himself wholly, completely, and perfectly to the will of the Father, even unto death. And Paul adjures you and I in here to emulate Christ in our own mind. To emulate the mindset that Jesus Christ showed on this earth. That if we would one day desire to be exalted by God in the heavens, that we would humble ourselves today. That we would clothe ourselves in godly humility and abject submission to the will of God. And one of the ways that we do this is through praise unto our God. Praise puts everything in the right order. As we lift up our praises to God, God is exalted and we are abased. That's one of the problems today with praise bands. Where is the attention going with many of these bands? Where are they seeking the attention? What are they trying to do? What, 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 what's going on with them? Many of them, I'm not, I'm not trying to put them all into a box, but have you realized today that many praise bands are kind of looking for personal attention, glory, drawing some attention to them, the way they're singing, the way they're playing. There's, there's a performance aspect that is drawing it. 
that's the opposite of what praise is supposed to do. Praise is intended to elevate God and lower us. If you're going to praise God in music and the music is not lowering you and elevating God, then you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. If the music is indeed elevating God and lowering man, then it's accomplishing the purpose of praise. Because that is the purpose of praise. To elevate God and to lower ourselves. To put things in the proper hierarchy. Let's make sure that our music is doing that. But humility is much more than just praise, isn't it? As I say this, there are two types of people under the sound of my voice this morning. Some people under the sound of my voice have never once humbled themselves before God. You have never made any motion to humble oneself. You are living life on your own terms and for your own pleasure. Perhaps you have never had any interest in what God wants from you. Perhaps your interest in God has only been to the degree that you have thought, what can God do for me? What you could get out of God? You've seen God as the divine milk cow that you can just milk when you need something. The divine lucky rabbit's foot that you can rub when you really are in trouble or when you really have a need. But the Bible says that God doesn't work this way. God is not a divine milk cow for our to, to meet our needs when, when it's convenient for us. We can't just put him on like we'd put a hat on only when it's raining. God doesn't work that way. In fact, it works just the opposite. The Bible says that we are naturally proud, that we are naturally shaking our fists against God. We are so proud, in fact, that we have chosen to rebel against God by committing acts of sin against Him. That the things that God loves, we do the opposite. That everything that, that, that is the will of God, expressed in the will of God, or the character of God, or the Word of God, we do things that are opposed to that. We do them willingly. We do them proudly. We do them with pleasure. We love darkness rather than light. And as we've just learned today, God resists the proud. God's holiness demands that sinners are separated from Him eternally. There's no amount of effort. There's no amount of good works. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of time that can overcome the problem that you have and I have called sin. But God, the Scriptures tell us, is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And on top of that, the Scriptures say that God resists the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. But giveth grace to the humble. God was not willing that any should be separated from him for all eternity, so he sent his son to Jesus Christ to do his son Jesus Christ to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He sent his son Jesus Christ to live on this earth. The Bible says that he lived as we said, he being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. God in flesh, God became man, lived on this earth, lived 33 or so years, lived a perfect life, had never sinned, and yet was put on a sinner's cross. And in doing so, the Bible says that God have made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. That God poured out your sin and my sin on Jesus Christ, making Him sin itself. 
bearing all of our sins in His own body on the tree, that we could be redeemed. But though this debt has been paid for you, your sin debt has been paid, you still must exercise your volition by accepting this gift. How do you do that, Pastor? Well, just as the humility of Jesus Christ before God's will brought Him the exaltation of glory, so too when we humble ourselves before the Word of God, say, God, you're right, I'm wrong. God, I am a sinner. God, I know that my sin destines me to a place of punishment and separation from You from ever, a place called hell. And we turn to God rejecting our sin, a term that we often call repentance. We put our full faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to be saved from our sins, knowing that there's nothing that we can do, that, it, that there's no amount of personal effort or personal ability or personal worth that can get us to heaven. But we humble ourselves before God and say, God, I can't do it, but You can and You have done it for me and I accept that. The Scriptures tell us that those who humble themselves God will lift up. If you've never taken that step of humbling yourself before the cross, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I encourage you to make now the moment. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and the Bible says He will exalt you. But there's a second group in this room. It's by far the largest group in, in this room today. And that is the group who have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. The, per- the principles of humility do not end when you get saved. In fact, they ought to grow in your heart daily as you learn more about who God is and what He's done for you. When our Savior Jesus Christ returns in all of His glory to establish His kingdom, to overthrow the kingdoms of this world, the Scriptures promise us that we will reign with Him in His kingdom. That we will be rulers with Christ in His kingdom. And just as your King, Jesus Christ, will be exalted as the very pinnacle of God's kingdom, He will be the King because of His humility before God. So too, your exaltation in Christ's kingdom, the degree to which you are exalted as a ruler and reigner with Christ will be directly proportional to the degree to which you have humbled yourself before God's Word. To whatever degree you are willing to become a servant for your brethren in this life, you will be exalted in the life to come. To whatever degree you will defer your rights in this life to God's will in this life, you will be exalted in the life to come. To whatever degree you will bear with patience the scorn of following Christ in this life, you will be exalted in the life to come. To whatever degree you will live the mind of Christ, humility, God will lift you up. Some of us are only going to get about this high. Some of us, maybe a little higher, some of us might end up exalted to the heavens. That's up to us. To become the greatest is to serve the least. To become the exalted is to clothe oneself in humility. To find honor with God is to refuse honor among men. If you will assume the very deepest of loyalties to the paradox of humility, you will find a joy and a blessedness that transcends your circumstances. 
It is a blessedness of knowing that you in your life have identified, if just in part, with the attitude and the disposition of the one who died for you. It's the joy and the blessedness of knowing that perhaps just in part, you have tasted a little bit of what your Savior went through for you. So let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Humble yourself. Take upon yourself the form of a servant. The life of the Christian is the life of the servant. The disciple, the Scriptures tell us, is no greater than his master. And if our master is indeed Jesus Christ, and if he indeed was the servant of all, even unto death, well, if we're to be like him, we must go and do likewise. Let's pray.